from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first our first scripture reading comes from the book of Psalm, chap, comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalm, chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Listen for and hear the word of God. I offer my life to you, Lord, my God. I trust you. Please don't let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies rejoice over me. For that matter, don't let anyone who hopes in you be put to shame. Instead, let those who are treacherous without excuse be put to shame. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach it to me, because you are the God who saves me. I put my hope in you all day long. Lord, remember your compassion and faithful love. They are forever. But don't remember the sins of my youth or my wrongdoing. Remember me only according to your faithful love for the sake of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and does the right thing. He teaches sinners which way they should go. God guides the weak to justice, teaching him his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Annie Worth, thank you so much. Annie, you're a fifth grader, right? Yes. Thank you for reading scripture today. And it's so great to have the handbells back in worship as well. Uh, it's a gift to us. You sounded amazing. And with a lot of you wearing matching black masks, looking pretty cool as a bell choir. So grateful for your ministry with us this morning. In addition to the text that Annie read for us, uh, there's another lectionary text uh, this one comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's the second chapter, verses 1 through 13. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we would hear a word from you that is exactly what we need to comfort us and to propel us into the faith, hope, and love to which we've been called. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the Pew Research Center uh, released some findings this past week that measured Americans' view on the federal government. The data may not be surprising to you. For almost two decades, Decades that span President Bush's two-term presidency, the two terms of President Obama, and the current administration under President Trump. For almost two decades, public trust in the federal government has eroded to all-time lows. Americans who say they trust the federal government has not eclipsed 30% since the days following 9-11. At the end of the Obama administration, it was about 18%, and currently today, during the Trump administration, it's 20%. Public trust in the federal government is not that high, no matter which party controls the White House. In another poll from Pew published about a year ago, 17% of Americans say they trust the government to do what is right at least most of the time. 17%. Now, I think it's important to note that Americans want to trust the government. Also, according to Pew, 75% of Republicans and 78% of Democrats say that it is very important that the government is open and transparent. Americans want to have confidence in the government. We want politicians and political systems and institutions at every level that we can trust and that we can rely on to do what is right. Statistically speaking, however, four out of five of us participating in worship right now aren't expecting that, at least in these days. And we might want to ask, we might wonder, how in the world did we get here? Why has trust and confidence dipped so drastically? Part of it may be 
social media, part of it may be the 24-hour partisan news cycle. We see politicians every gaffe, every foible, every moment of hypocrisy, every self-interested political play, and the news cycle is way more interested in covering that than covering stories about politicians leading with good governance or, or politicians leading with justice or or politicians leading with bipartisanship, or, or leading with a moral lens for the common good. Those stories just don't play. And obviously, obviously, right, there are many, many, many leaders in the federal government who serve with that moral lens, who show up each and every day in leadership, working for the common good of this nation. Even so, even so, our collective expectations as citizens of this great nation, our collective expectations of the government and politicians are more Machiavellian than anything else. Many of you know that book, The Prince, published over 500 years ago by Machiavelli. In that book, he argued that politics and power is a zero-sum game driven by utilitarianism and self-interest. And at the heart of it, Machiavelli argued that, that efficiency and the preservation of power, not morality, should motivate the ruler. To that end, Machiavelli said that, that rulers and politicians should be willing to, and I quote, Act against mercy, act against faith, act, act against humanity, act against frankness, which is another way of saying act against the truth, act against religion, all in order, he says, to preserve the state. For many of us, Machiavelli's instructions to would-be rulers and politicians resonate with our assumptions and expectations about the political sphere today. The vast majority of us have come to expect utilitarianism, have come to expect self-interest, have come to expect a defeat, dominate, humiliate your opponent kind of politics. And I think the vast majority of us, the vast majority of us aren't expecting that to change anytime soon. I begin the sermon uh, this way because if you were a Christian, if you were a Christian living in the middle of the first century in the Roman city of Philippi, then you would have had certain assumptions, you would have had certain expectations regarding the tactics of what Caesar and senators and province rulers and governors would do, would administer in order to hold on to their power. If you were living in Philippi during the middle of the first century, you would know what to expect from those in authority. And you wouldn't be expecting it to change anytime soon. Let me explain. About 100 years, about a century, before Paul's letter to the Philippians was even penned, the city of Philippi was actually the stage for the final battle of a great civil war. Mark Antony and Octavian, seeking to avenge Julius Caesar's murder, took up arms against Brutus and Cassius, the masterminds of the assassination. It's interesting as a side note, 
to remember that Octavian was Julius Caesar's great nephew, and it was Octavian who would later become Caesar Augustus, and he would be on the throne at the time of Jesus' birth. He is the Augustus to which the gospel writers Luke and Matthew refer in their narratives. Well, in 44 BCE, Brutus and Cassius, senators in the Roman Republic, organized a plot to kill Caesar in a quest to thwart his growing concentration of power, which they believe undermined their system of government. As I mentioned, this led to a great civil war. Mark Antony and Octavian chased Brutus and Cassius and, and their forces to a battlefield in Philippi. Philippi in present-day Greece, where, where the latter were soundly defeated. From that point on and into the rest of the first century, Rome concentrated its power into Caesar. They treated Caesar like a god. Rome expanded its empire to North Africa and to the Near East and, and even into Britain. And even though this period has often been called uh, the Peace of Rome, known by that, that great phrase, Pax Romano, Romano they, they, they still ruled with, with force. They still ruled with fear and power, often exercised through violence. They exploited the vulnerable. They exploited the poor and enslaved and humiliated people that they would conquer. If you were a first century citizen of Philippi, you would have known that history. You would have known the, the story of your fine city. And your expectations would have been crystal clear on what Roman political power was all about. There was no question. You would have been crystal clear as to the great lengths those in power would go to dominate their opponent, both internally and externally. Threats against the republic itself, the, the, the city-state, the empire rather, itself, and threats against them that came from the outside, externally. Of course, the early Christians in Philippi had to look no further than what the Romans did to Jesus a few decades earlier to get the point and what they would eventually experience through the, the, the programmed persecution that Rome levied against Christians in the first century, those who confessed Jesus as Lord. So for Christians living in this time in the city of Philippi, public trust in the Roman government was not very high. In fact, it was very low. The cross of Christ and the eventual persecution of the church was all they needed for the shaping of their expectations and assumptions regarding the empire's political power and authority. Now, friends, there, there's no way, no way to get around this next point. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi was not naive or ignorant or obtuse to the political circumstances of the day. Paul's letter is not just politically aware, it's also politically subversive. Right, Because in his letter, he clearly declares that Jesus, not Caesar, and not Rome, is Lord. Jesus is the one God highly exalted, not Caesar, and not Rome. 
Jesus is the one who deserves our worship, not Caesar and not Rome. His name is above every name, and at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. Paul says that Jesus is ruler of all, not the empire and not Caesar. What Paul also does in this text is flip the script in terms of the Philippians' expectations of what power and authority and rule and leadership actually look like. You see, Jesus is a different kind of ruler. He's a different kind of, of leader. Paul wrote, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. The word, uh, the Greek word here that we translate to the word exploited shows up only one time in the entire New Testament, and it shows up in this particular text. The word was commonly associated with what those in power would do to their enemies and to those they wanted to subjugate. It had the sense of rape and and, and, and pillage and the sense of robbery and, and murder. It gives the sense of dominating somebody else. Jesus, Paul says, is a different kind of ruler and a different kind of leader. He will not exploit God's will and he will most certainly not exploit others, not even an enemy, not even those who nailed him to a tree. Instead, Jesus, Paul says, took the posture of humility. He, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He emptied himself of his own will so he could be filled with the will of God. He became obedient to the will of God. He trusted in God's sovereignty to defeat the powers of fear and violence and death. And God accomplished such things in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is a different kind of ruler than you Philippians expect. He's a different kind of ruler than you're used to seeing. He has a totally different mind. He's a totally different mindset than what you expect and what you're used to. And what Paul eventually goes on to say is that that mindset and that mind should belong to every Christian. Paul wrote, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like-minded with Christ. Now, in order for us as Christians to be like-minded, we have to know what kind of mind Jesus actually possessed. And when we think about this idea of, of the mind, oftentimes we think about wisdom or knowledge or understanding. Sometimes when we're talking about the mind, we're actually talking about what somebody cognitively constructs, what they think. I would contend, however, when Paul invites us to have the same mind that is in Christ, to have the mind of Christ, he says, that what he's talking about is something that is related to the integrity between what we want, what we desire, and what we actually do. That Jesus's mind has integrity. That what Jesus desires and what he wants is what he actually does in and for the world. That was his mind. The opposite of this I think this is helpful. The opposite of this is what James in his epistle in the New Testament calls double-minded, being double-minded. 
James actually makes up a Greek word that we translate as the word double-minded. It's nowhere else in, in antiquity until it appears in James's writing in the New Testament, this idea of being double-minded. And I think what that means is saying that, that we want something or we will something and we confess something and we say, that's what I desire. And yet we live in a way that's antithetical to that which we desire, that there's a lack of integrity with what we say we want and what we actually do. It's like a high school student who expresses their desire to go to MIT, but only chooses low-level math classes during high school. Or it's like the person who says they want to find love or a meaningful relationship, but are closed off and won't risk vulnerability. Or it's like a person who says they, they believe in putting their family first. Family's my number one priority, but they give all their time and energy to their job or to their hobbies or to a combination of both. Or like the person who, who claims to be a Christian who says, yes, I, I believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and I believe that Jesus calls me to neighborly love, but then turns around and gossips about or demeans or is apathetic to their neighbor's needs or even tries to humiliate their neighbor. That is, in James's estimation, what it means to be double-minded, when what we want and what we do lack integrity. Having the same mind as Jesus, being like-minded, means to have a mind of integrity. It means that what we say we want and what we do actually align. And the good news of the gospel this day is that Paul actually believes in his writing that that is possible for us. Possible for that church in Philippi and possible for the church here in Atlanta and around the world. Paul writes that God is at work in us and listen to exactly what he says. He says that God will enable us to do what? To both will and work for God's good pleasure. That God will give us what we need to not just want it, but actually do it. Philippians 2.13, God will enable us to both will and to work for God's good pleasure. If we claim the name Christian, if we confess that Jesus Christ is our leader, is our Lord, then we will want that God will put in us a desire to empty ourselves, to be filled with God's will, and to be obedient to the call to love God, to love neighbor, and to love ourselves. That by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can actually want such things. And even more, we can actually do such things. We will be like-minded with Christ and possess a mind of integrity. One final thought before I close. Our expectations uh, may not be that high, at least statistically speaking. They, they, they may not be all that high when it comes to the, to, to the political sphere that we are living in right now. And while we may have become disenfranchised and, and perhaps disappointed or disengaged with what is happening in this sphere, perhaps it's time to start talking about the expectations we have of ourselves 
To be sure, as Reformed Christians, we should expect from ourselves that we would engage the political sphere with the standard of bearing witness to God's common grace for the common good. That is embedded in the DNA of our faith tradition, and I believe that engagement brings God pleasure. But in addition to that, perhaps it's time for us to expect more integrity from ourselves. Perhaps it's time to expect integrity between what we confess as Christians, what we read in our scriptures, what we profess each and every week in worship, and what we actually do, and how we actually show up in the world, because that pleases God too. Perhaps it is time to consider the expectations we have for ourselves. Is it time to expect that we would be like-minded with Christ even in these difficult days? Is it time to embrace his style of rule, his style of authority, his style of power and leadership in our own lives? Is it time to empty ourselves so that we may be filled with the will and the work of God? Is it time to be like-minded with Christ? Church, I, I think it is. I think it is time for all of us to have the mind of Christ and to share that mind together. Amen.